POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, and I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined this week by Stephanie Dornschneider of University College Dublin, speaking about her new book, Hot Contention, Cool Abstention, Positive Emotions and Protest Behavior During the Arab Spring. We'll also hear from Matthew LeCouture of Wayne State University about his new article, Privatizing the Commons, Protest and the Moral Economy of National Resources in Jordan. Finally, we'll hear from Maria Yasua of the German Institute of Global Affairs and Miriam Edel of the University of Tübingen, speaking about their new article, The Arab Uprisings and the Return of Repression. Thanks for joining us. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Matthew LeCouture of Wayne State University, author of the new article, Privatizing the Commons, Protest and the Moral Economy of National Resources in Jordan, which was just published in the International Review of Social History. Uh, Matt, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So tell us about the article. Well, so in my fieldwork in Jordan, which broadly was looking at the relationship between um, labor activism and sort of more popular based activism in Jordan in the run up to and in the, uh, the occurrence of the, the, the Arab uprisings in 2011 in Jordan. You know, one question I had in mind, you know, was this idea of, you know, what do we mean by protests uh, that are in response to structural adjustment, economic liberalization or neoliberalism, what have you? Um, you know, obviously this takes up a lot of space and a lot of research. Uh, but I was interested in sort of unpacking and sort of uh, dialing in on, on what we sort of mean by that kind of protest. And, you know, of the various types of policies that get bundled up, uh, you know, under the banner of neoliberalism, the one that kind of came up in my conversations with activists the most uh, in Jordan in terms of their opposition to these uh, policies was the privatization program, which had begun under King Hussein in the 1990s, but really accelerated uh, in uh, the 2000s under King Abdullah II. And, you know, in particular, uh, Abdullah, you know, was oversaw the privatization of the mining sector, the Air Potash Company uh, in 2003, the Jordan Phosphate Mines Company in 2006. And it was really these privatizations in particular that um, came to produce the sort of the most ire from those I talked to. But you know, rather than sort of blanket condemnation, there was a lot more ambivalence about these privatizations than I perhaps expected going in. So on the one hand, I was interested in unpacking this ambivalence, understanding why some privatizations, uh, for instance, uh, the Jordan Phosphate Mines Company privatization produced kind of blanket condemnation, while others, perhaps, uh, you know, one example I use in the paper is the Arab Potash Company, which produced a little bit more kind of varied responses uh, from different actors. And where this kind of led me was to look at the way in which the sort of disparate experiences of privatizations of these national resources, uh, the way these different experiences sort of informed, you know, different types of sort of localized grievances, but nevertheless uh, sort of um, merged together or were merged together by activists in many cases into something that was more universalized uh, in terms that sort of, and I, the way that I look at it is it kind of moves towards a kind of blanket or, or sort of much more of a cohesive kind of critique against the, the neoliberal project in Jordan. So tell us a little bit about the background on this then. You said that this begins, that you, that you were looking um, after 2011, but give us a sense of how privatization in general um, plays with uh, the Jordanian public. 
and why this one proved to be so uh, contentious. Well, so to kind of get at this, I use the, fr the conceptual framework of moral economy as a way to kind of capture this, this, the historical and moral dimensions of these natural resources and how you know, different actors across Jordan were all kind of bound up in the development of these, um, uh, these resources historically, the development of companies that were primarily controlled by the state or that the state had controlling shares in and also uh, had lots of, uh, had their sort of hands in the, the actual running of these companies. And, you know, looking at, um, you know, why it was, you know, so that, you know, there's all sorts of different grievances with respect to these, but everyone sort of has some understanding of how the privatizations affected their lives. Uh, but as I said before, these, these end up being somewhat ambivalent in terms of, you know, the, we could look at this in terms of the way some other uh, scholars have, have explained this resistance to privatizations and neoliberal policies in general. Some have looked at it in terms of, um, you know, the uh, as a, a kind of uh, defense of kind of national sovereignty. These are Jordanian companies that should stay in Jordanian hands and, and resources that should stay in local hands. Others have looked at it in terms of a kind of back back-ended way of kind of expressing anti-Palestinian chauvinism mm -hmm. because the private sector, in many ways, has been you know disproportionately you know represented by Palestinian uh, elites. And also, uh, you know, some actors such as Kareen Rania, who's Palestinian uh, descent, uh, you know, has, you know, been implicated in some instances of, you know, uh, corruption or, you know, there's sort of a discourse around that. What I sort of uh, look at is kind of the way in which all of these things can be true, because as a sort of, you know, the, the, in the construction of a, a sort of discourse, you know, these things, these, these sort of symbols are multivalent, but nevertheless, um, you know, there's a, you know, uh, a way in which, you know, so what, what might tie these different things together? And so what have I, what I sort of look back at as the, the historical construction of this sort of, uh, of national resources in Jordan as a, um, you know, a feature of Jordanian development and, a, and sort of it gets bound up in these circuits of redistribution from the state to society. So it becomes in a sense, a way in which the unequal relations between state and society are reproduced through this, um, the various ways through employment, through the development of the sort of rural periphery that's otherwise not very well developed and, and paid attention to, through all the way to people living in the cities who in some way feel that these, uh, these companies, these resources should redound on, on their livelihoods and their prosperity such that when these privatizations occurred in the mid 2000s. You know, one uh, one of my interlocutors, you know, expressed this idea that you know the privatizations. I didn't feel the, the them in my pocket at all. Like these things happen. There's all this discourse around them. The, the prosperity they're supposed to induce, but nevertheless, you know, even people that are not you know employees of these companies or that live in the regions in which the the, the local economies are dependent upon them, um, you know, who live in Amman and and, and such even they sort of have an idea that this, uh, that there's some connection uh, and a moral dimension to that connection between these uh, resources, the companies that control those resources and the sort of uh, general prosperity of Jordanians. And so you think that some things are more likely to trigger this moral response than others? Yeah, so the basic idea is that, you know, with, with respect to the Jordan Phosphate Mines Company, it was kind of very apparent that 
Um, there was there was these opaque circumstances in which the privatization occurred that I still haven't really been able to unravel, and I haven't seen a convincing explanation for exactly how the company was um, divided up and who took control of it entirely. Um, and then there is a very this sort of very uh, publicized case of uh, Walid Al Kurdi, who was the CEO who had ties to the royal family of family and, and otherwise, who was involved in kind of, you know, paying favoritism to his, you know, particular, you know, family members or friends and things like that, and disrupting the patterns of job allocation uh, that were that had been occurring in the company. So there's all this sort of corruption and things. It's very sort of obvious that this is a very like, you know, taking something that is this sort of common, uh, commonly held by Jordanians and putting it towards private uses or even towards the, you know, the uses of the sort of very narrow elite within the state, as opposed to, you know, being a, a conduit of redistribution through society. Whereas if you look at the, you know, other uh, privatizations, either they're looked at quite favorably in many cases, like the airport, um, and, and the you know, Royal Jordanian, there's, you know, there's much more sort of back and forth about whether or not that was worthwhile. And then the particular Arab, Fos uh, the Arab Potash company, there's an idea even amongst uh, employees of other privatized companies that this is like a good example where you know, even a foreign company bought this, it was bought by a Canadian or a per, you know, controlling shares were bought by a Canadian firm uh, you know, the reorganization somehow worked to make that more efficient and therefore to actually aid in the sort of distribution, uh, dis distributionary functions of the of potash to sort of, you know, redound in people's pockets in, in some in some way. So when you take this case and you and you kind of generalize it out, what do you think that your article and your research more broadly what does it make us uh, kind of see differently about uh, Jordanian protests or about protests more generally? What do you hope that people will do with these theoretical insights that you've produced? Well, so one piece that I pursue in the paper, uh, has to, it also has to do with kind of the broader, um, in the special issue of the International Review of Social History, it has to do with the, uh, you know, kind of uses as a framing the Walden and Seddon book about food riots and or sort of this idea of IMF riots that occurred predominantly in the late 80s and 90s. And, you know, so I try to kind of carve out a difference between these earlier kind of bread riots in Jordan that had a lot to do with the early, uh, you know, instances of neoliberalism under Hussein, but a much more kind of mediated, you know, he was a little bit more reluctant to really sever these, uh, you know, important uh, kind of hegemonic uh, ties to society. So, you know, the, you know, for instance, you know, Arabic bread um, and the distribution of that while prices may go up or prices, you know, periodically there'll be protests and then they'll be brought back down. So there's a lot of like this mm -hmm. sort of fluctuation where protests are kind of, uh, you know, serving to kind of keep the moral economy intact in, in, in some sense. Um, whereas looking at the privatizations, one thing that occurred to me and the one thing that sort of came out in, in the research is that, you know, privatizations can't really be rolled back in the same sort of way. So resistance to privatizations may in fact be something important to look at because, because people can't just demand, they can demand things like we should look into the privatizations, we should hold people accountable, but ultimately it's so bound up in the neoliberal project of the state that there's, there's kind of no going back. And so my question was kind of, what does this mean for looking at the kinds of discourses that emerged and the kinds of you know modalities of protest that emerge, 
And, you know, does this kind of represent kind of a more transgressive kind of era of uh, activism in Jordan? And I think, you know, there's a lot of research that's come out recently that's kind of pointed to this, like the, that I kind of tried to build and, and sort of be in conversation with, which is the sort of the increasing kind of inextricability of the uh, political and the economic spheres. And the idea that there's really no way that the sort of economic problems that people are facing can be solved without taking a large, you know, greater control over, over governance and, and, and sort of vice versa. And in that sense, you know, that, you know, we've looked at, you know, recent protests against IMF uh, price increase, you know, sort of tax increases in 2008, um, more recently, the teacher protests in 2019. And then recently, if you looked at the sort of COVID uh, situation, which people are looking at, you know, the, the state can do all these things to make people's lives better, you know, and act in these ways, but it, it, it sort of doesn't usually, but it is now. And what does that mean for the relationship between uh, people in the state and, and what that means in terms of sort of pushing past the sort of patterns of um, of protests in Jordan that have historically, you know, as, as many, you know, Jillian Schwedler and, and so forth have, have argued that, you know, there's a sort of very kind of, you know, there's this, all these sort of red lines and, and sort of, uh, you know, routineness to protests, you know, are we sort of moving into a sort of era in which things are becoming increasingly transgressive and this discourse that kind of brings lots of people together around their differently situated grievances with respect to privatizations um, and the ways in which activists sort of actively, you know, tried to universalize that, like even knowing, you know, within the phosphate company, knowing that there were different ways in which people didn't like the privatization, but trying to sort of combine those together through discourses of, of theft, uh, a national theft and of corruption to, to kind of, you know, you know, create some much more sort of a, a universalized um, sort of sentiment that also I think, you know, in my sort of other research, you know, I kind of argue that this kind of leads us to sort of ways of thinking about uh, the sort of solidarities that are, that form uh, across, you know, labor protests, which are sort of thought about as sort of purely economic and more popular protests, which are sort of conceived of as uh, more political and the ways in which, um, in fact, the bridges can sort of be formed across uh, these divides. And then, and, and then actors on both sides of these divides don't really think about these things in purely economic or political terms, of course, because that's not how people experience any of these, um, these types of grievances. Great, we've been speaking with uh, Matt Lecouture about his new article, Privatizing the Commons, Protest and the Moral Economy of Nat National Resources in Jordan. Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, it's been great. This is the Poll Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Maria Yasua of the Institute for Middle East Studies at the German Institute for Global and Area Studies and Miriam Edel of the University of Tübingen. They recently published the article, The Arab Uprisings and the Return of Repression, part of a special issue in Mediterranean politics. Uh, Miriam, Maria, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the article? What was the major contribution uh, that it was making to the special issue and to the field as a whole? Well, so in a nutshell, uh, 10 years after the so-called Arab uprisings, uh, we have noticed that politics in the MENA region are more repressive than ever before. So we argue that comparative politics research should pay more attention to repression and in particular to its different dimensions in order to analyze and explain the variation of repression. 
And this would help us understand future and current political dynamics in the region, such as the endurance of authoritarianism and the prospects for mobilization and protest, but also more long-term outcomes. So what we do in particular, particular is, well, that we take stock of recent comparative politics research in the region and propose a direction for future research. So we review innovative literature that helps disaggregate the phenomenon of repression. And then, um, if I may already say, like what we do, how we go about in the article is that we say, okay, first of all, we, we um, describe our observation that there is an increase in repression across regions. So we illustrate this with data from the political terror scale, which shows that, that between 2013 and 2018, the, the regional scores of political terror were on an unprecedented regional high. And within that broad tr uh, trend, we then also distinguish changes in the patterns of repression. But over the overall picture is one of increased and modified state repression, with the exception of Tunisia, where we had uh, this democratization process. And then we come to the issue what we study, so the dimensions of repression. And we discuss them, then we will surely come to this in a minute, like describing them a bit more like forms, agents, targets of repression, but then also our contribution is to add a bit more the dimensions um, of justification and visibility of repression and also the digital forms and various levels um, of analysis. This means transnational and subnational repression. And then finally, we also discuss how we actually as scholars can study repression, especially in, in this repressive environment that we have in the MENA region. So we discuss also the challenges, the challenges that we face when researching repression and also propose some ways out basically how we can go about this. Why don't we start with this discussion of the of, of the types of repression and this move to disaggregate it into uh, in, into its different forms? So tell us a little bit. What what do you see uh, that we weren't getting right about repression before that we can see more clearly now? Well, in the past few decades, uh, comparative politics research on the MENA region very much neglected the issue of repression. So even scholars focusing on authoritarianism thought of repression as a rather crude strategy of coercion and control, but it was assumed to be a rather constant factor. And on the other uh, hand, uh, mainstream repression research was mainly interested in explaining different levels of repression. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we started out uh, writing this article, we thought of giving an overview of all changes in authoritarianism research, um, but we soon decided that repression was sort of the major game changer disrupting on the one hand the Arab uprisings protests, but also altering the nature of the enduring autocracies. Uh, so they have become less predictable and the red lines have been moved or uh, tightened uh, in many cases. Mm -hmm. So um, what we are trying to do here is um, to um, promote a more nuanced understanding of repression that goes beyond quantitative measures. Um, and these dimensions of repression that we outline are an advancement in comparison that studies that only look at where repression is more or less severe. So taking these uh, dimensions into account can help us capture qualitative differences in repression that have meaningful consequences for the lives of citizens and the opportunities for political contestation. And um, these dimensions that we uh, propose are sort of a systematized toolbox to inspire researchers who seek to attain a more comprehensive understanding of repression. So many uh, interesting research puzzles relate to more than one of these dimensions. So scholars may focus on any of them, um, uh, depending on whether they relate uh, to their research question. 
Can you give us an example of some of the of one of the types of things which we might see when we take this qualitative approach to the different forms and types of repression? Uh, well, yes, for example, so, um, well, in the past you had, you know, like uh, you were looking at what are the effects of repression and you were looking mainly at, okay, there might be deterring effects or escalating effects, this, this whole debate in the literature. And we say, well, now, if we, if we look at these forms of repression, we can then also relate them to, um, to more newer, you know, like uh, uh, shifts, like tactical shifts in protest tactics and so on. And it, this is important when we, you know, like the dimensions that we have and in, in, uh, that we focus on is, for example, the visibility or the justifications of repression. And they are, we think, really important um, to, to understand what, what kind of effects repression has. So, so is there a backlash or a tactical shift and so on? And of course, this will depend on, on how also repression is perceived by the population and or by, by other elites and, and even by the international community. So this is why we think it is so so mm -hmm. crucial to not only look at, okay, is, is repression now high or low, but really what, what are the, the forms? So is it one other aspect that also is now increasingly discussed in the literature is is the uh, targetedness of repression. And, and we see really nice pieces out there that we also are citing who really show us that whether repression is targeted or indiscriminate makes so much difference on, on you know, what, what then, then the effects are. Um, yeah, you're, I, it's really clear if you look at something like Egypt in 2013 uh, after the coup, that really does seem qualitatively different in terms of things like the visibility and uh, the justifications. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, oh. go ahead. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah. So, uh, this is actually uh, uh, one thing that we we looked at in in more uh, detail in one of our previous papers mm -hmm. um, to to study the justifications of repression um, during the uh, massacre. Uh, so, um, putting down the uh, Rabah Radawiya protests. Uh, and there we could see uh, how, how some of these dimensions really interrelate and um, how important justifications are actually um, casting uh, the opposition as terrorists and employing lethal repression and still having some sort of uh, support for this. So what other types of things do you see out there now which are new, which are qualitatively different from the types of repression that we that we typically might have seen before 2011? What, what, what uh, new tools has the Arab Spring brought to these repressive regimes? Well, one, one important thing is, uh, is the digital repression, so digital to tools used. So, you know, like initially, as so many have now <laughs> actually discussed, um, well, people were thinking, okay, maybe a, a, a digital tools would rather help opposition. And we saw, of course, in 2011, also this side of, of, the, of the picture. But as time goes on, we, we rather saw really these, um, this other darker side of, of usage of digital tools. And um, so, so on the one hand, we see that uh, digital repression is a form of repression itself, which is constraining people, censoring um, of web contents or the denial of access to internet services. And then on the other hand, by the usage of digital tools, also, um, well, other forms of non-digital offline repression can be enhanced or economized because maybe there's more, um, more knowledge 
to employ repression in a more targeted way um, because just citizens are tracked better and 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 with um, yeah various um, yeah tools to to, to survey yeah. which were not there before. This is just just one example. Yeah. And you also mentioned that this this also has a transnational dimension. People aren't safe um, when they're like trying to be activists from Washington or from London. Now these digital and transnational forms really do seem different. Yeah, so uh, we could see um, the harassment of uh, dissident in, in exile. So there is a lot of uh, new research uh, on uh, activism in uh, abroad, uh, and these are also very much uh, tracked down by uh, and uh, targeted by uh, digital, uh, yeah, by state agencies who employ digital repression, um, harassing them online, um, and also, of course, uh, threatening their families back home. Um, and um, uh, one uh, important uh, factor in all this is also the sort of collaboration of private transnational actors. So. Um, even Western companies that uh, sort of aid and abet um, um, Arab autocracies uh, with uh, surveillance software and the like. Now, there's a one really, uh, really important part of, of your article, uh, and it's a theme that runs through, I think, the whole special issue. And that's this question of what these, this, not just the increase, but also the changed nature of repression, um, what it does to people who are trying to study uh, these countries and uh, try and research uh, in these environments. So tell us a little bit about what you, what you saw and what you think um, in terms of the impact of this, not only on uh, the people suffering under repression, but on us political scientists who are trying to study them. Well, gathering data on important as sensitive as repression is never easy. And at the same time, of course, uh, repression is the primary reason why conducting political science research in the region in general has become very risky. And uh, this can be seen in the fact that academics have become a target of repression, uh, which is new to some extent, uh, at least uh, in the form, um, uh, as we have seen scholars uh, from abroad uh, being targeted uh, uh, to a much uh, larger degree than before. But of course, local scholars bear the brunt of all this. And uh, when it comes to the topic of repression, there is a real dilemma between our desire to study these things and the costs of endangering ourselves as researchers and especially the people we interact with when conducting fieldwork. Uh, so, I mean, despite these unfavorable circumstances, uh, repression is a highly relevant phenomenon and uh, the solution, of course, cannot be not to study it. So um, in the article, we describe a few sources and methods that could mitigate the access problem and that are each related to the different dimensions of repression that we uh, propose. And uh, in particular, this also includes the historical turn in social sciences, so the use of archival data, but of course also making tools of uh, use of digital tools. Uh, as Miriam has outlined, um, we still can use some of these uh, data um, from social media, for example, or some uh, colleagues have also tried to um, uh, do surveys uh, that way. So, and in the end now, uh, you know, I think th this article makes a real contribution in kind of helping us to see what has happened both in the literature and in the region in terms of these transformations of repression. 
So what would, what would you think or what would you like the, uh, the major takeaway of this article to be? What do you hope that uh, other scholars will do now that they have kind of understood how you are rethinking repression in the Middle East? Yeah, well, um, empirically, we think just what we show is that, that uh, we really hope that basically everybody understands that the MENA region is not the same uh, as before the 2011 uprisings because there is more repression and more comprehensive strategies of repression. And thus, studying repression in its various forms is a crucial task for scholars in the, in the coming years. And um, at the same time, simply coining some regimes as more repressive than others doesn't offer too much insight into the dynamics of political rule. Uh, so thus, um, we really hope that scholars conceptually re realize more and more that they need to pay more attention to the details of repression and to the context in which it takes place. And well, we just hope and try with our article to propose a, a toolbox of dimensions of repression to study these varieties of repression. And if, if so, if scholars would study basically this more, <laughs> and you know, maybe our article can be of use to 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 look at these aspects of repression um, in the future. I imagine that it's already on a number of uh, comprehensive exams reading lists for comparative politics. Would be nice. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Miriam Edel and uh, Maria Yasua for joining us uh, to talk about their article on uh, repression in the Middle East and North Africa in the journal Mediterranean Politics, part of a special issue. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. Joining us now on our book segment is Stephanie Dornschneider of University College Dublin. Um, she's the author of a new book, Hot Contention, Cool Abstention, Positive Emotions and Protest Behavior During the Arab Spring, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So tell, tell us about the book. What do you think the major contribution of this book is and, and what do you hope people get out of it? Right, so in this book, I'm studying the Arab Spring and I'm very interested in comparing those people who participated in the Arab Spring and those who decided to stay at home instead. And my main finding is that people who decided to join and participate in the Arab uprisings were motivated by positive emotions. And in particular, I find that they base their decisions to join the uprisings on positive emotions of hope, that their protests would succeed. They also experience emotions of courage to face repressive states. They experience positive emotions of solidarity with the other protesters that they saw on the street. And finally, emotions of national pride. And in contrast, I find that people who decided to stay at home rather than joining the uprisings were mainly motivated by safety concerns. And here I'm not talking about what we know so well from the protest literature in terms of emotions of fear that people were afraid of the state and then based on that sort of intuitively or reflexively stayed at home, but rather I'm talking about Deliberate re uh, deliberative reasoning processes in which non-participants very carefully uh, reflected on the consequences of protest behavior and deciding that 
for safety reasons, it was really better for them. They were better off staying at home. Yeah, so these were the main findings. So it's really interesting. So maybe we could start by um, by talking a little bit about um, you know the way you're thinking about emotions and reasoning. What do you mean by hot and cold, positive or safety? Let, let's think about this a little bit more and tell us what, what did you mean by that and how does it fit into the psychological literature? Right, so you're right here. So I took the terminology from psychology uh, which is the hot and cool framework of cognition, which was developed a while ago by Matt Calfe and Michel. And basically what these two psychologists did was to identify two different types of cognitive systems that drive uh, human decision-making in general. So on the one hand, there's this hot cognitive system that is basically based on emotions. It's often automatic, it's often intuitive. It's also known as the go system and it's also related to fast decision-making. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, there's this cool framework of cognition or this cool cognitive system, which is really slow, deliberative, reflective. It's also dubbed as the no system. And it's supposed to serve as a sort of a control system protecting us from potentially wrong behavior. And um, my analysis sort of found that participants could be differentiated from non-participants in the Arab Spring based on this cognitive framework. This was um, a finding that was developed based on an analysis of mainly interviews with people who participated in the Arab Spring as opposed to other people who stayed at home instead. And I did not enter the analysis um, adopting this cognitive framework a priori. Rather, I met with participants and non-participants I conducted ethnographic interviews, I coded these interviews, and the main findings were then in line with this hot, cool um, framework of reasoning, which is then also reflected in the title, hot contention, cool abstention. And I can, of course, say more about how I analyzed um, these reasoning processes or the interviews. Yeah, um, sure. But, but before that, though, um, would it be fair to say that this cool reasoning is more aligned with like rational choice theory? Is that is that the is that a way to think about it? Yes, absolutely. Um, so Kahneman, um, who might be um, yeah, equally well known, uh, also among Middle East experts. So he calls this cool framework or cool cognition system two and the hot uh, uh, cognition system one. And he says that system two is slow and deliberative. And some examples he gives of it is uh, when, for example, when we are trying to calculate a complicated mathematical task, uh, we can't have an intuitive response most of the time, right? So two to the power of uh, 102, we need to sit down and we need to start calculating where, and that's system two, it's rational choice. You're think, sitting down, you're carefully thinking about what it is um, that you're trying to do. And system one, by contrast, is very fast, automatic, emotion-based, um, and you do it most of the time more or less intuitively. An example would be uh, when you when we were still going to work, happy days, mm -hmm. um, we would automatically take a right turn when we are supposed to take it rather than every time we arrive at the crossroad, think about, oh, am I going to turn left or right? Something that we do intuitively, automatically. Um, so that would be less rational choice, uh, intuitive based on yeah, emotional, hot reasoning processes, whereas these more deliberative accounts of system two 
are more based on rational choice. So when you talk about the, the hot uh, process or the positive emotions, you really do emphasize things that, um, that are in a sense normatively charged like hope and courage and that sort of thing. And so, so tell us a little bit more about that then, how those kinds of emotions help to push people into uh, participating. Right, so this is really um, based on a careful coding of uh, the direct speech of the participants and non-participants in the uprising. So I would code expressions such as, I was very hopeful that uh, the protest would succeed, or I felt overwhelmed with pride of being Egyptian, um, or uh, they would talk about uh, occurrences uh, of state repression, for example, these snipers that were lying, for instance, on the Egyptian Ministry of the Interior, and then they would say uh, that they were not afraid of dying, that they felt courageous enough to face the state authorities. So this coding is really directly from um, direct speech, and I didn't really um, apply these codes based on, with a normative framework in mind, but rather I tried to use codes based on Strauss and Corbin's theory of grounded theory uh, that directly took the words of the interviewees and then uh, used those as uh, the main denominator. Um, so that's how I sort of developed these categories representing hope, courage, solidarity, and pride bottom up from the own words of the mm -hmm. protesters and non-protesters. So you, so you looked at this in um, both Egypt and Morocco. So tell us a little bit about those cases. Why did you choose them? Kind of what did you see? Right, so um, I was already familiar with Egypt at the time because I had done earlier um, research on resistance in Egypt, violent and nonviolent. And uh, when the Arab Spring broke out, um, I was of course fascinated with that. Um, however, um, I was also observing variation in the Arab Spring experience across the Middle East. And Morocco appeared to be a case that was rather similar to Egypt. So it also has an authoritarian framework. It also, like Egypt, um, displayed a similar infrastructure of protest, both online through Facebook and Twitter, but also offline, uh, some prior experiences of protest. And then of course, um, economic grievances, hardship, inequality and high poverty levels. So the two countries appear to be uh, rather similar um, around several stru uh, structural factors that were applied by Middle East experts to explain the uprisings. However, they differed significantly in the outcome. So in Egypt, we saw the very early resignation of President Hosni Mubarak, but in Morocco, we saw that the king remained stable in power until today, actually. and. Um, I wanted to make sure that the findings that I would gather in my analysis were not um, unique to just one particular setting of the, the Arab Spring. And so I thought that um, Egypt and Morocco would be good comparative cases. Now the case of uh, Morocco, of course, you have the, the, the king and the institution of the monarchy. How does that affect your analysis that one is a monarch and one was a president? Right, so ultimately, if you are going over the interviews and you are looking at how people talk about the state, there were surprisingly few little differences between the protesters. So in both countries, protesters 
would criticize uh, incidences of what they called mainly state crime, Jarima. And um, I would have expected from theories in Middle East studies, right, royal exceptionalism, mm -hmm. etc., uh, that the Moroccans maybe discuss the king more favorably than the Egyptians. But uh, that was actually not the case. Rather, protesters in both countries were very critical of both um, leaders of the heads of state. So whether it's the king or authoritarian um, president uh, didn't differ as much as we would have expected from theories that emphasize um, royal exceptionalism and um, the efforts of royal rulers in the Middle East to appease their opposition. Um, so in the analysis of the direct speech of the protesters, this did not matter much. Yeah, not at all, actually. However, a priori, one would have expected there to be great differences um, between Morocco due to this royal setup, which is similar also, of course, in the Gulf countries, etc. This has been studied widely. However, if you're looking at the direct speech of how protesters in Morocco discussed their government, there are very few differences to the descriptions of the protesters in Egypt. So you're talking then about kind of the, the onset of protest. And um, so let's talk about some specifics. Like tell us about uh, Egypt, tell us about Morocco, and how did you see these, uh, these reasoning processes playing out um, as people are trying to decide whether or not to join the protests? Right, so first of all, so as I said, I selected both countries based on the structural factors that they shared. And um, I would have expected a priori before sitting down with these individuals that they would frequently refer to poverty levels or inequality, uh, maybe also social media frameworks, etc. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so when, when actually sitting down with these um, individuals, first of all, you will find that the narratives that they give, the accounts of their behavior are quite diverse. Um, it is not immediately obvious how to compare them. So I, mm -hmm. what I did was I took recordings wherever I was allowed. Often I wasn't allowed for safety um, reasons. Um, that's another story about which I can maybe uh, talk separately. Um, in that case, I took detailed notes. And then I coded literally every sentence, every subclause for um, two things. Number one, the main factors that were raised by the individuals when discussing what, why they protested or why they didn't protest. And these could be all types of factors. So some would of course express those positive emotions that I mentioned earlier. Many would also discuss those um, governmental uh, behaviors of crime, corruption, etc. Many would of course also discuss poverty, but overall I identified more than 140 types of beliefs um, <laughs> that they raised when talking about their behavior. Mm -hmm. I then also coded the direct speech for how they connected these behavior. So for example, someone would see um, these snipers on the Ministry of Interior in Egypt and then say, uh, talk about uh, feelings of courage to face these snipers. These connections were identified from linguistic expressions such as because, therefore, I also included conditionals, if, mm -hmm. then, so I came up with these networks um, of beliefs that were somehow connected to decisions to either join the protests or to stay at home. 
And at the first glance, these networks appear to have nothing in common. <laughs> um, so there was no straightforward answers that I found while conducting the, the interviews. Oh, this is the one factor. Oh, they're all um, suffering from poverty or they're all aggrieved because of inequality. This was not the case. Um, rather, what I had to actually do was to um, develop a computational model which could then systematically evaluate these complex networks um, of beliefs connected to decisions to protest. And after I had um, developed this model and run the analysis, then surprisingly, so this was a surprise for me, this is not a finding that I expected. I found that number one, these positive emotions were really the key trigger for people's decisions to join the uprisings. And number two, and maybe this gets more at the question you asked, so what, what triggered these emotions themselves? Mm -hmm. And there what I found um, that the main trigger of these emotions were observations that others were brave enough to face the state authorities. So first of all, uh, observing unprecedented numbers around themselves, join protests at home. Also hearing about the success of the uprisings in Tunisia. And then of course, a very well-known trigger moment. So the self-sacrifice of some people. Boazizi in Tunisia, of course, is the most well-known, but there were others who gave their lives and people would frequently comment on those events in order um, to explain how they came to feel these positive emotions of hope, courage, solidarity, and pride. So how does this argument then relate to some of the other explanations that are out there, such as uh, Timur Koran's preference falsification idea, or uh, the idea that these uh, that the pro the people were kind of rationally updating their expectations about whether or not they could hope to win, like that sort of thing. How does your uh, focus on emotions fit with those kind of more rationalist types of arguments? Right, so I think that uh, the findings that these positive emotions were actually triggered by the protest behavior of others is very much in line with Quran and also Elisabeth Neuman, um, that once sufficient people, sufficient numbers of people on the street, people lose their fear um, of joining protests. So they, they, in the terminology of Quran, they are not afraid of revealing their true preferences and their dislike of their rulers in public. And then that is when it becomes too, uh, possible to join. I think this is in line um, with my findings, but um, rather than rationally updating their preferences, people just get carried away by emotions. Um, mm -hmm. However, at the same time, this finding that individuals um, who were present, so these are not just um, non-participants who lived in a different country or in a different uh, area or in separate cities, but these were non-participants who lived among the protesters about whom we just don't hear because they are not the ones who mobilized on the streets. Um, we found that still safety-based reasoning prevailed. That was the main factor um, preventing them from joining the protests. And this suggests then that um, in the reality, people might be much more reluctant to reveal their true preferences in public, even during mass uprisings than what we often like to um, believe or what, what makes sense from an outside perspective, not living in an autocratic dictatorship. Now, I, I think we all know that hot emotions tend to fade over time. And so uh, if, if, if it's the emotional uh, valence which is bringing people out to protest, 
Does that sort of imply then that uh, there's a, a time limit to how long these can be sustained? That's a very good question. Possibly, yes. Because um, you, you really, this is like this moment of enthusiasm um, and uh, you know, maybe it just is something that can't be sustained. Yes, so possibly yes, but maybe even more importantly, it also means that it can be triggered again any moment. And maybe this helps us better understand why revolutions unfold with such speed. Mm. I mean, this is every time we read about a revolution, whether it's the Arab Spring or the 1989 revolutions in Germany with which I grew up, um, or even earlier the 1848 revolutions in Europe, and they always seem to catch people by surprise. Mm -hmm. And uh, all those theories that we have right now, which rightly um, emphasize grievances and also changing uh, mobilization landscapes, they usually don't get at the suddenness and the, the surprise with which these emotions, uh, these revolutions break out. And I think that by adopting this psychology framework and focusing on emotions, we sort of get at this speed, so hot um, cognition, emotion-based cognition and decision-making is fast uh, by nature and it can help us better understand how these um, revolutions based on a particular trigger then just um, yeah break out and take us all by surprise. Um, you are absolutely right that then yes possibly they don't stay as long but you could imagine a situation of course as we saw in Egypt on Midan Tahrir where protesters started camping on mm. the place, right? And then they um, just stayed there. And people um, would say that they, throughout uh, that time frame, when they were in the tents, they experienced great um, yeah, moments of pride in each other, solidarity. So that seems to have lasted over the time frame that they were in those tents. But yes, of course, and once they, they leave and they go home and they, take on their their ordinary lives yes and they're unlikely to keep those emotions over a very long time frame that's absolutely right in in your in your account of uh, Egypt and Morocco uh, one thing which jumps out in addition to the emotions is the role of information where people suddenly learn things that they hadn't known before like uh, your story of the Egyptian who had no idea that there was a, a revolution in Tunisia until she switched from Egyptian media to Al Jazeera. So talk, let's talk a little bit about that in terms of the role of the media, social media, and kind of information in terms of triggering these emotions. Yes, so I think the key was information about protests which was not as easily available from my understanding. So I have 121 reasoning processes in total. And um, many non-protesters were for a large part not, well said that they had not been aware of the protests. And also protesters gave accounts where they were following the state media and not immediately becoming aware. Um, but once they saw others protest or read about this on Facebook or, or heard their friends talk about it, then this knowledge changed um, that they, in the sense that they felt these emotions and felt inclined, then, then started to join or began to, to put to the street to join these people. Um, so information about protest um, would be key. I would think that information about governmental crime was not so much key because everyone more or less seemed to be aware of that. 
but rather this information that people were actually trying to challenge the government, which was, of course, as, uh, as we had studied in, so in Middle East studies, we were always impressed by the stability of these rulers. Nobody thought that the Arab Spring would break out um, that year. So um, what was important was that suddenly this information became available that people were successfully or yeah, successfully in Tunisia and then also were finding the courage to go out and challenge those rulers. I think that information was key. So what happens when hope fails? When it fails or when it fades, did you say? When it fails. Like when, uh, when the revolution doesn't succeed or when people start being killed instead of um, being successful, what, is, what kinds of emotional responses does that trigger or behaviors does that trigger? Um, so I have not studied this empirically, but I would just assume that from the reasoning processes that I identified for the non-participants in Arab Spring, which did not um, uh, display any signs of hope, there was, I think, mm -hmm. maybe one non-participant or two um, who expressed hope that, uh, yes, and that's a major ingredient that is missing in, in, in order to make a decision to protest safety concerns or De deliberations about what the consequences of participating in protests might be. I mean, of course, one um, concern that is always on your mind is, well, what will happen to my family? Mm -hmm. <laughs> will my brother be arrested? Someone said they might come kill my sister. Many had been arrested. Uh, this is just the reality that you live with. It's a reality that you cannot escape from. Um, so I think that those concerns um, then are probably very dominant. Uh, on the other hand, it has to be said that a minor finding of the analysis was that people who didn't participate in the uprisings and those who did not feel hope that protests would be successful also um, displayed beliefs that were supportive of these rulers in spite of poverty, in spite of corruption, but they would make references to some effort that the state has made often personally for them. So in one case in Morocco, um, state authorities came and paved the street after a long struggle, so that was perceived as very positive. Others would talk about, um, this was actually the same in Morocco and in Egypt, you would hear people talk about the head of state visiting hospitals or helping the poor or visiting small villages. So there were also these kinds of examples that, that were given. Um, so in that context, of course, if you're thinking like that, um, hope, to overthrow these uh, dictators doesn't even arise because you don't think that there's a need to overthrow them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I guess one last question then is that, so now that, now that the book is out and, um, and you know, people are reading it, how do you hope that it will be, you know, it'll affect the study of social movements in the Middle East and more broadly? What, what do you hope that the major impact and contribution will end up being? So I really hope that we pay much more attention to the behavior of individuals. Mm -hmm. So I think we, uh, that many of our theories cannot account for the differences in the behavior of individuals. So it's true that when revolutions break out, we are, it is also a great image, right? To see all these public places filled with millions or hundreds of thousands of people, that is an incredible moment. But at the same time, the reality is that large numbers of people, usually even larger numbers of people stay at home and these very often live under the same conditions and in yeah, very similar contexts. 
And many of the theories that we currently have don't get at these differences in individual behavior. And I think that we can learn a lot from yeah, so anthropological or ethnographic studies where we try and, and really deal with the nitty gritty detail, trying to go um, and uh, yeah, conduct field research, talking to actors, and then carefully analyzing word by word what these actors have to say and trying to differentiate um, what, um, yeah, what motivates actors, those who participate in social movements from others uh, who don't. And then maybe another point is that much of the, the literature on social movements from psychology focuses on negative emotions. Usually the, the contrast is always between anger and fear. So mm -hmm. those who feel anger about usually about some sort of state crime, corruption, et cetera, um, they are the ones that go out to the street. And those who, are, who feel free, fearful, they are then too afraid to go. But I think that this account that um, these interviews provided is a bit different. It says, well, actually positive emotions can also contribute to these movements. It's not just an anger movement, but um, yeah, there are also positive um, sides that, that can play a role. And positive emotions had been studied before, but to my knowledge, they have not been linked systematically to protest behavior. There's one exception, a Wendy Perlman and Perspectives mm -hmm. on Politics, where she outlines the potential role of positive emotions. But apart from that, in psychology, it's usually all about the social identity model of collective action, SIMCA, which really outlines, rightly so, emotions of anger. But I think that that's probably not the, the entire picture. Well, great. We've been speaking with Stephanie Dornschneider about her new book, Hot Contention, Cool Abstention, Positive Emotions and Protest Behavior During the Arab Spring. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me.